For those of you who have uh, who are getting books to read um, and try to stay up with church history, I was just flipping through my charts again today. Uh, just this uh, charts on church history. This is a series you can get charts on New Testament, Old Testament, blah blah blah. But this is a really good one. I mean, I was just looking through what I was doing, uh, and it just has it all out there. I probably ought to just pass this out and let's drink a cup of coffee and go home. That'd be too easy. Well, the publisher, I don't know, but it's uh, done by Robert Walton. Um, if you're welcome to come take a picture of it. I don't know if they still if it's still in print. I mean, I got it probably 30 years ago when I was in seminary, but uh, those are good sellers. Also, I have another book uh, written by my friend, um, uh, Roy Ledgerwood. Uh, if, if any of you would like to come, uh, I will give it away. It's... it's Okay, we're looking at uh, the history of the church, as you know. This is lecture four. I'm behind a little bit on where I wanted to be. There's just a lot to cover, and uh, every time I teach church history, I try to bring in more of what I know, and that's really a, a bad thing, but uh, uh, I'll get through it. We're in no hurry. We don't have to be in a hurry. I mean, I mean, who's going to tell me to stop, right? <laughs> Usually, I'm listening to my wife if she says, you know, done. So hey, I was going to go through... Then I'm going up to the Reformation, just so you know, at the end of the summer, and then I was going to do from the Reformation to, to uh, up to Christmas, but I might put that off till next summer. We'll see. We'll see how, how everybody feels afterwards. You might be tired of church history at that point, but we'll make it up to the Reformation here. T- not tonight. Just a review of past names, um, where we are in church history. You know, Paul and Peter, Andrew and John, four of the disciples. Uh, they lived right there in the first century, the men underneath them in the green, uh, these are men that knew the apostles, men like Clement of Rome, not Clement of Alexandria, he comes later, Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, Papias, men that knew them and, and descended from them or came from them. We call these the church fathers, all of these underneath the timeline there. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, Cyprian, Gregory, and then we get, we'll get into men like Anthony. Um, you may have heard of Anthony. He was a, what we call a desert father, lived in the desert. Eusebius, most of what I'm teaching you, we learn, I learned from Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. That's where we learn most of our church history. He wrote it all down. Athanasius, great hero of the faith, um, got exiled from his church four times. Four times, was told to leave. Went out, came back, went out, came back. They got tired of him. Uh, I thought, well, I haven't been exiled but once here, so I must be doing okay. And right there at the red line, the Constantine's Edict of Milan, which will make Christianity tolerable. Uh, in 313. So last week we looked at the Gnostics. And just to, to uh, a quick summary of what did the Gnostics believe, and that'll bleed into what we're doing tonight. Many of you have asked, can you tell us where the Bible came from? That really is our, our goal for tonight, is to look at how our Bible came together, why our Bible came together. Um, but what did the Gnostics believe? According to their Gnostic theology, Gnostic is a, is a Greek word, gnosis, and it means to know, knowledge. If you're an agnostic, that means you don't know. You say that I don't know if there's a God. Agnostic. So it's, you know the word. Uh, today it's all entrenched in the New Age and spirituality. Um, essentially they believe the physical world is the corrupt creation of a different God, lowercase g, than the father of Jesus. So what you see, you look out, you and I might see beauty. I'm looking out at beautiful wild sunflowers out there, a beautiful sunset, the world, the fish. The, they would say evil. Why is it evil? Because it's made of something. It's material. And everything material is evil. Only secret spiritual knowledge can free persons from the spiritual world. Because you'll notice that you yourself are physical. This body in Gnostic thought is wicked. 
It's possible, however, that, that there's some spark within your soul given to you by one of the good gods that will give you the ability to be free, to be set free from your bodies, not just by death, but by knowledge. Hence, Gnostic or Gnosis. Secret spiritual knowledge. That's out there today. And they will, um, what the spiritual Gnostics will tell you today is, look, you people, you read from a physical Bible. You think it's God's word. The God you trust is a foolish, evil sub-God. And you're reading a word that's corrupt. You need spiritual knowledge outside of a book. Find that. We'll show you the way of salvation. Gnostic thought. It It dates way back to the early second century. Few people are capable of gaining this secret spiritual experience. So a good Gnostic will go and try to see if you are um, available for such knowledge. Why wasn't Gnosticism attractive? You're thinking, that's just weird. But there's, as you probably have noticed by now, whether you've lived 18 years or, or 90 years, there are some weird people <laughs> on the planet, right? Yeah. And, and right when I said that, Joe walks in, right? There he is. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. That's just... Uh, your wife is really normal, so that's a good thing. So why would this idea that materialism be, um, is evil, why would it be attractive? First of all, in the late first century, natural disasters and a plague afflicted the Roman Empire. In AD 79, Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed Pompeii, killing thousands. These might have, we don't know, but these might have, in a Gnostic context, a negative view of the physical world made sense. Um, and it's instead of there being a tragedy that people died, they would say the Gnostics that died were freed from their bodies. And that's a good thing. The world was now primed for a Gnostic teacher. Enter Marcion. Marcion. So we'll talk briefly about Marcion. So when a world is ready and they've been told that the physical world is bad and you need salvation other than what you've been told from the apostles and their followers, Satan is always on the scene. And you could see that. Satan is always on the scene. We went back a couple, couple of lectures ago, and I showed you the early uh, heresies that were in the church. Um, the, the first one we see was legalism from the Judaizers. Uh, they're trying to add some works to salvation. And then we've got people like the Nicolaitans. We read about them in the book of Revelation. They were trying to make salvation a really, okay, you're saved, and now you're, since you're saved, you can do whatever you want. It was licensed to sin. And then there was the docetics, the docetists, which comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And they believed, they were kind of the precursor to the Gnostics saying, everything is wicked and Jesus, though physical, only seemed physical. And I told you, if you read the Gospel of John or John's epistles, John is constantly, he uses the word know over and over, gnosis, over and over in the Greek text of 1 John. We know, we know, we know, we saw, we touched, we felt, we saw his majesty. So when you're reading John, you can see that John in his gospel, the word, the logos, what did it do? Became flesh. We saw it. We testify to this. He's already teaching against that early heresy. So the world is now primed through now this new Gnosticism, Gnostic religion, for a man named Marcion. Uh, Marcion lived A.D. 85 up to 160. He was the son of a pastor, uh, and he worked in shipping. You don't think he drove an 18-wheeler back uh, when there were no 18-wheelers. He was in in shipping. His dad was a pastor. You've got to watch out for any kid whose dad was a pastor. In the mid-2nd century, Marcion developed a theology that mingled a negative view of, of the physical world which is Gnosticism, with a heretical understanding of the Christian tradition, a version of Gnosticism. So it's going to be his version of Gnosticism. So he's going to mingle some things about Christianity 
with the Gnostic Gospels, with, with what the Gnostics are saying. And that's what's so it's perplexing even today. People will say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I never believe that. Jesus is, is loosely defined. Being a Christian is loosely defined. Some people, you hear people today, they'll, they'll be a little bit more specific. I'm a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ versus just saying Christian. Christian just because you're a Republican. Some people think if you're a Republican, you're Christian. They really do. Be careful. Define it. And uh, Marcion enters in and he's going to mix the two. His teachings, he said the Old Testament God, of course we know that as our God. Um, he thought, saw him as a lowercase, foolish sub-God. He's one of the evil sub-Gods of Gnosticism who created this present evil material world. That it was the evil sub-God Yahweh who gave all those evil commands to go and slaughter the Canaanites. He's mean. You can't listen to this God from the Old Testament. He said that the Jews are the offspring of this evil God, Yahweh. He said that the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is the true God. Now that, that we believe. But what Marcion rejected is that Jesus is the manifestation of the Old Testament God. Um, yet, he said, even though Jesus is the true God, he said his physical body, he's a docetic in some sense, only seemed physical. And the Father of Jesus would not resurrect anyone's physical body. So when we talk about a physical resurrection and the physical return of Jesus Christ and the physical nature of Jesus Christ, being human and God, that completely that flies in the face completely of any Gnostic teaching that everything uh, physical is wicked. And so he just has to say, yeah, he existed, but if you actually went up and touched him, your hand would go through him. He wasn't really physical. He only seemed that way. Christians must deny, he said, all physical pleasures, even sexual relations between spouses in marriage. Uh, now, not all Gnostics believe this. Other Gnostics would go in the opposite direction, saying something along the lines of, since your body is physical, uh, since your physical body is wicked and evil, you can do whatever you want to with it. It doesn't matter. Marcion was more on the, on the other side of that, where you don't. He said that we should not use any Jewish writings as Scripture. So, He's entered into this fray, into this world where he's, it's prime for Gnostic teachings, and Satan got us, brought the folks a, a good teacher. Um, when, re, when he refused to repent, remember his dad's a pastor, apparently an Orthodox pastor. Marcion was excluded from fellowship in his father's church. He fled to Rome, and he developed his theology into a system that borrowed from Gnostic ways of thinking. He begins to develop this theology. No repenting. Uh, we're going to go, and I'm going to I'm going to systematize this idea. The teachings of several apostolic texts contradicted Marcion's teachings, so he rejected them. Now that's just typical of every generation, is it not? I read that passage in the Bible. I don't like it. It could be anywhere from reading that women are not to teach or have authority over men. People today look at it and go, I don't like that. It could be the doctrine of election. I don't like that could be the doctrine of creation. I don't like that. I don't like that, so I will get rid of that and do my own thing. It's always been around. It's called liberalism. And that's what he's saying. Um, he reads some of it. What he doesn't like, he rejects. In response, he created his own canon. Now, canon here is, is spelled with one N. You may know that word. It's a, uh, it means a, uh, it's a Greek word for a, an authorized list, um, an accepted list. I've even put it uh, in quotations, an authoritative list, a canon. It means a measuring rod. We would call it today a ruler. 
A ruler is what measures it. And so a canon is, how, would, how do we measure truth? Do these books line up with truth? Well, Marcion chose his own writings from the Bible to measure his truth. He created his own canon. His canon listed 11 books, an edited version of Luke's gospel, and 10 of Paul's 13 epistles. Now, one of the things that this shows us is that by 140, A.D. 140, they're already making a list of books that comprise the Bible. They're there. He knows. He's chosen Luke's gospel out of the other gospels. People tell you, oh, those weren't written until much later, and they were written by other people other than the people that are named. Don't believe those people. Those are, those are called liberals as well. I think I answered a question here recently, or maybe it was after class, and someone asked me, why do they say that Matthew didn't write Matthew? Well, because if you can get Matthew's authorship out, if you can take Matthew as not being the author, then it's not an apostle. And if it's not an apostle, we don't have to obey it. So he has his own books. Uh, somehow he found, and he, he edits Luke's gospel, and he finds, uh, he gets rid of Paul's pastoral epistles, First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Doesn't like those, those don't fit his theology. But he's got a Bible. Going around saying, I believe the Bible. He's quoting the Apostle Paul. So you might be led to think, hey, this guy's good. In response to this, Christians began to discuss among themselves which books were inspired by God. So you see this evolution of what are we going to do about this heretic over there. He's teaching us things that don't fit with what we know the apostles taught. Up to this point, people are not going, we've got to have a Bible. No one walked around with a bound copy of the Bible. Don't, don't think that for a minute. With a little black cover and your, your name on it. That was unheard of. The Bible by A.D. 100, by the end of the first century, in the beginning of the second, all books of the New Testament had been written. Only the four Gospels, Acts, and the Epistles of Paul were known to be divinely inspired. It's not that the others weren't known. It's just that some of the ones that we have in our Bible weren't yet quite accepted. Not yet quite. Doesn't mean that they weren't inspired, but people weren't quite sure. You didn't have what we have today. You've got to put yourself in a context where there's no worldwide news. There's no printing press. There's no uh, Jerusalem Times that's keeping up with the latest news, latest and the greatest. None of the things that we know today that they have, um, they accepted what they accepted. There were other books, Hebrews and James. Who were they? What, when were they written? How are we going to know that they were written? You're not going to get a headline on your iPhone in the first century that says, New Book of the Bible written by Jesus' half-brother, James. That's not what happened. So it would take a while for some of these books to come into circulation and be accepted. And that's where we were, where they were. There were, however, in the midst of that first bullet point, the New Testament has been written. The four Gospels are known. Um, and I quote 1 Corinthians 11, because in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving uh, the Lord's Supper, instructions for the Lord's Supper. He says, on the night before our Lord died, he gave us these instructions. He took the cup and he took the bread. He's quoting from the Gospels. They're there when Paul's writing Corinthians around A.D. 55. So that's there. Don't ever let anybody say the Gospels weren't written until the end of the first century. Don't ever listen to that. Now, I've given you the logic of it before. Here's the common sense of it. Again, just in case you forgot it. Luke starts off in his gospel talking about how others have endeavored to write gospel accounts. He, he, he acknowledges that. He said, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to write my own account. It seemed right to me to do that. Okay, so Luke is writing. He's writing to a man named Theophilus. It's a Greek word for God lover. 
a lover of God, who appears to be some sort of Roman official. He's writing to him about all that Jesus began to do. And he tells the office, it's really just written to one guy. At the end of it, he's done with Luke, and then he writes Acts. And he says, in my first letter, I told you everything that Jesus began to do. In this letter, O Theophilus, and he tells us about Acts. You still with me? Acts ends in A.D. 62 with Paul in a Roman prison. Not the prison he would die in. He would get out and go back to prison and later die. But it ends in Acts 28 with Paul in prison. So mind you, in A.D. 62, Luke had already written all of this account. By A.D. 62. That's the second letter he's written. Go back to Luke. That was the first one. And in the first one, he's talking about gospels that had already been written. So if the end of Acts is A.D. 62, what are we doing about Matthew and Mark? Well, they're written before A.D. 60 for sure. So don't let anybody, just common sense, putting it together, what's going on. uh, That's not even to mention all the evidence that shows how they were written early. So don't let anybody say now they were written A.D. 70 and not by those people or A.D. 90. No. Don't listen to liberals. That's why you got to go to the right church. You got to listen to the right people. You got to know that the person who studied and who's bringing it to you loves the Lord God and is not trying to find some loophole in the Bible that he doesn't have to obey. But there were other voices in the second century speaking and writing. And around 150, AD 150, the Gospel of Thomas, the infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is another one, the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary, Apocalypse of Peter, other books are creeping in. There are other people out there talking. And if you wanted to get your name in circulation back then, You would just say, Thomas. Well, what better person to write a gospel than Thomas who once doubted and who saw the Lord Jesus risen and said in John chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. That's a guy who's been through the ringer, saw his Lord resurrected. Hey, we'll attach Thomas's name and boom, we'll get some sort of credibility. So there's other writings in circulation. Uh, You might be at a particular church that uh, where Peter was your pastor. Peter was your pastor. You knew you were living the first century and the right-hand man of Jesus was your pastor. And you know that Peter didn't write a gospel. If you did, if you'd have known that, he would have been speaking from his gospel. Peter's gospel is actually found in Mark because we know that Mark is writing for Peter. That's at least what Papias tells us. Um, And so something comes around one day. You're still living. Peter dies in around A.D. 68. And uh, in A.D. 90, you're still an old-timer at the church. And someone comes in and said, yeah, I've got a book, uh, The Gospel of Peter. And you're there and you go, hey, wait a minute. I knew Peter. He didn't write that. That's not right. So there's other people talking. All you need to do is wait for everyone to die out so that you can spread the lie. Now, what's the event we're waiting for everyone to die? They're almost dead so that it can be completely disregarded in our, in our time? The Holocaust. You see, there's still Holocaust survivors. There's a quote from, um, uh, from Eisenhower after the Holocaust where he's going through and, and taking pictures and making sure photos are taken of all of the filth and the horrors that happened in the Holocaust. Because I won't, I won't use the colorful metaphors he used. But he said we need this because some, because some blankety blank is one day going to try to deny that this happened at all. So it happens. Even in our generation, they're trying to tell us the Holocaust didn't happen. And when they're all dead, they're not going to have any proof of it after that anyway. Even though the pictures are going to be there. 
So there's other voices. They're walking around and telling other things. Irenaeus, however, we've met him. He spoke clearly against these particular books that were also in circulation, assuring Christians in AD 180 that there were only four Gospels, proving that there were indeed other opinions on Jesus. Yet Irenaeus made it clear that they weren't authoritative or divine. So there's lots of Gospels, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of whatever, attach some name to it that's important, and Irenaeus is saying there are only four. So by 180, it's clear that there are only four. Although there's other ones writing, there's only four that's been accepted by the church. We know that from our church fathers. Some of the pseudo-Christian writings uh, we looked at last week from the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, which is in Egypt. These are the Gnostic writings. An example would be the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, and if you read the Gospel of Thomas, you will find sayings in the Gospel of Thomas that are accurate and consistent with the four Gospels. Same story that we read in the Gospels. Other times, however, they are Gnostic speculations. There's one story of Jesus in the infancy Gospel of Thomas where he makes mud into a uh, some sort of a weapon, and he shoots a bunch of birds, and he scares a bunch of people away. They're just strange stories, speculative stories, and you're reading it going, that's weird. Because remember, there's always been weird people. And there's even weirder people who will believe the weird people. And it will also say uh, things that are written in the Gospels that might be true, might be authentic. We don't know that they were or were not true. We don't have them in our Gospels. But it could have been something Jesus said. Uh, so, and that's just an example of the Gospel of Thomas. Another one is called the Apocryphon of God, Apocryphon of John, I should say, which is full of strange Gnostic speculations. Don't, please don't ask me to recite them. I don't even remember most of them. I've read it before. It's amazing I've read some of these books, and they were so bad I just forgot them on the spot. But uh, no, I, I have access to them. They're just strange speculations. Don't ever think that you need to get your hands on them and read them. Uh, you'll just go, what? This is just weird. Some weird, imagine some strange fool today that's in the news writing a book. Would you read their book? Uh, then don't think you need to go back and read some strange fool from the past uh, just because they wrote 2,000 years ago. The Epistle of Judas, recently published in the 21st century. Uh, the Epistle of Judas, I should say it's the Gospel of Judas. don't know why I put Epistle. It's the Gospel of Judas is, uh, I believe, my, my best understanding. It's either the Gospel of Judas or Gospel of Mary is a, uh, a speculative uh, gospel whereby Jesus, after he told his 11 disciples what he was doing, whereas we vilify Judas, and the guy, it is the gospel of Judas, and the gospel of Judas, it's that Jesus went to Judas and said, all right, now I'll tell you the real plan. Here's the real secret plan that we're doing. I'm leaving the other guys out of it. You're the only one that knows. Well, that's a great thing to do. And there's people that bought it. So we see some of those writings. So we see over here in the left-hand side, if you can't read that print, you've got James, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, the, the, the books of the New Testament written down at the bottom and around uh, right before the end of the first century, the Didache, uh, the Gospel of Barnabas, First and Second Clement, Shepherd of Hermas, um, and then up there in the, the red, right there around 150, 160, 170, these Gnostic writings appear. And they have gospel attached to them, which has caused people to say, wait a minute, why were they excluded from the Bible if there's other gospels? You've no doubt heard this. Dan Brown made a whole movie on it, The Da Vinci Code. So when we look at the formation of the New Testament canon, the church is, I wouldn't say in a crisis, but it needs to make a clarifying statement. Um, back in the in the Late 1800s, early 1900s were the great years, I say great in the sense that they were big, uh, of, of questioning the Bible. 
Um, you ever hear of a man named Julius Wellhausen who began to um, called the, the documentary hypothesis, J-E-D-P. He said, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. Uh, a, an author named J, another author named E, another author named uh, D, another author named P, they wrote the Old Testament. It wasn't Moses, wasn't written by Moses. Um, Jesus wasn't a historical figure. And so the church had to answer it. And it brought about a bunch of great apologists that people like us today, we can now read their works and see, wow, I mean, as, as filthy as it was that these skeptics and liberals were coming out telling people that they weren't believable, it kind of woke the church up to go out and say, no, we need to prove what is true. And so it's the same, same as happening in the, in the second century is we need to put these silly gospels to rest. Some examples of the various Christian writings, obviously our New Testament books that we have in our current New Testament, 27 of them. But there were also what was considered authoritative, though not scriptural, were the Apostolic Fathers, which we've looked at the last few weeks. From A.D. 90, between A.D. 90 and A.D. 150, Letters of Ignatius. Uh, remember, all of this can be found in the Apostolic Fathers book that I've showed you. A letter of Polycarp. Letter of Clement to the Corinthians, the Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas would be the pastor of an area called Hermas, uh, and the Didache, that uh, that teaching uh, of the of the apostles. Uh, these were these were books that were thought of as somewhat authoritative. And you know, in some books, you, you can go to a church today and 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 read from another book. It's okay. Uh, it's my plan to do, go with with the men at this church in the coming months to go through the Pilgrim's Progress. And look at uh, John Bunyan's travels. It's a great allegory on life and what he goes through. It's very biblical. Do we have to have the Bible open every time? It's good. We're not doing it now, are we? We're looking at old documents, and, and you keep coming. You must not be too insulted that we're not just doing Bible study. There are authoritative documents that we know are not on par with Scripture that can also teach us, as were these books. These are Christian writings. Keep in mind, there were no bound Bibles in the churches. It had yet to be compiled in its present form. So when we go back to this, we're using things. These men knew the apostles. So without a bound Bible, we show up to church, no one brings a Bible. If you were wealthy, you might have had a copy of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. If you were wealthy, you didn't walk around with it bound like that. And you didn't stand in, in church and they say, now turn to Daniel chapter 3, this, that, and the other. There were no chapter divisions. Uh, there were no bound books. You weren't flipping pages. Uh, more of a scroll. Where? You've got to roll it out. You know, you need a whole table across. You know, get everybody away from it. It's just different. Keep in mind, it's not the same as we have it today. Uh, it had yet to be compiled in its present form. Churches uh, had access to various apostolic letters and the Gospels along with the Old Testament. So churches had access to it, but you sometimes had to wait. If you're in a kind of a podunk town away from, away from the big cities, you've got to wait for an evangelist to travel around. If that evangelist comes and he's got a copy, he might come in and say, hey, I've got a copy. At least I copied the first three, or at least the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you're a church member that day, bring him in. Let him teach. That'd be a traveling evangelist. When you read the, the epistles like Second John, I've told you this uh, in, in previous weeks, is that Second John, I believe it's verse 7, uh, he says, don't let anyone in your house, don't welcome anyone who doesn't admit that Jesus was in the flesh. Don't even give them a greeting, don't let him in your home. Now that's not for you and I today to say Mormons can't come into our home. It's not a good application of that. But they were traveling evangelists since you didn't have trained preachers. 
If the apostles, apostles can't be everywhere at once, you've got a little church out in the middle of nowhere, and you're waiting for someone to travel over and give you some, something they have. Hey, I've got the first half of Paul's letter to Ephesians, or the Philippians. Great, come in and teach us. Uh, so churches had various, they had um, access to some of these, but they wouldn't have had a whole shelf of them, at least not all of them. Maybe the more wealthy ones would. Not everyone had an apostle or a trained pastor. Uh, trained pastors came later. There were no Bible colleges or seminaries uh, sending out their people. We, we have that today, but you've got to get out of our context. I mean, you might trust me or a pastor like me who comes from a certain school that you would uh, appreciate or that you trust. Uh, back then, uh, you might not know what you're going to get. And if there's not an apostle there, you hope your elders know enough to be able to scrutinize the guy that's come into your home where you're meeting for church. The scriptures circulated uh, and it was copied, some of which we still find buried in the sand today. That's why we have so many manuscripts that are found or, or shreds of evidence that are dug up in the sand. Look here, somebody copied. Imagine that. You're in the day and the pastor, the preacher that came in, he's got to leave. And you happen to have some ink and some paper. Again, paper is not something you just go at the bottom of your, your printer today. It, you, it's, it's made of leather. It's painstakingly difficult to make it with papyrus reeds. But you've got a piece of paper and a writing stencil. And maybe the guy stays long enough for you to write it all out. We find some that have obvious mistakes, misspellings. Someone's trying to write it as fast as they can. Others are very meticulous, buried in the sand. We dig up these, we compare them. There's almost 6,000 manuscripts of the Bible being dug up that we can compare one with the other. It's very interesting. So that's kind of what we have. That's what you must keep in mind when we think of the compilation of the Bible. From A.D. 70 to 140, the Gospels, Paul's epistles, and quotations from the church, from the church fathers governed the churches. That's what was taught. But we had the four Gospels. We had all of Paul's epistles and quotations from the church fathers. From A.D. 140 to 220, the Acts of the Apostles was also accepted. And the Muratorian Canon, which I'll tell you about in a minute, this Muratorian Canon, which is another list of books, it included 1 Peter, 1 John, Jude, and Revelation. But the Gnostic writings were creeping in during that time period, 140 to 220. Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Didache were questioned. It wasn't quite certain if these books were written by John. No one knew then nor now who wrote Hebrews. Shepherd of Hermas was close, but people knew it wasn't written by an apostle. The Didache was the only one that probably could have made it in, but the early church fathers were going, no, it doesn't fit our criteria, which I'll show you in a minute. But they're out there and people know of them. From 220 to 400, however, our current canon of Scripture came to be, specifically in 367. Um, so it's, it's evolving. But yet, what I want to show you tonight is that even though our current form that what we have with the 27 books of the New Testament, most of those books were already being read, passed around, and copied. Others weren't quite sure, but they were there and people knew about them. This Muratorian canon I talk of, or Muratorian fragment, you can see it if you look it up, uh, it was discovered by a great guy with a great name, Ludovico Antonio Muratore. <laughs> it wasn't published until 1740. It dates back to A.D. 180. It's a canon. Again, it's a, it's a list of books. Was my Italian accent pretty good? Anyone? I mean, I, I thought it sounded pretty good. And the amazing thing is I never learned Italian. It's just... 
I am amazing, right? <laughs> Dated to 180. What's that? <laughs> humble. Humble and proud of it. The Muratorian canon omits, because it's a fragment, it's mutilated. Um, it omits the full list of Gospels, but the interesting thing is that it calls Luke and John the third and fourth Gospel. So what does that imply? That there was a first and second Gospel, we know as Matthew and Mark. Even though it's not in the Muratorian canon, it's mutilated at that point. Um, all of Paul's letters are present in the Muratorian canon. Hebrews, James, and both Petrine epistles are absent, but they're not explicitly rejected. They're just not there. Remember, 1 Peter was received earlier. It's just not in this canon. The wisdom of Solomon, which you'll find in Apocrypha, which I'll tell you about later, and the Apocalypse of Peter are also listed in the Muratorian canon. The shepherd of Hermas is named but rejected as scripture due to its relative novelty. So it was somewhat new, and so they knew it wasn't written by an apostle. Uh, but here's what you have, this Muratorian canon. So really, all I want to, I don't want to confuse you with too many strange names, but you can just see it. What I want to show you is this evolution. Um, you've got Marcion with a canon in AD 140. He's got a list of books, and he's wiped out other books he doesn't like. That means they're there. So they were there enough for him to wipe them out. Later on, this Muratorian canon, which dates back to that, has even more, and we have the church fathers quoting passages from the books that aren't quite sure they should be in the Bible yet. Some of the Jewish religious books eventually ended up in the Apocrypha, as I said, like the Wisdom of Solomon and Esdras, which is, uh, it's called Third and Fourth Ezra. How many of you grew up Catholic and you, you had that Apocrypha in your Bible? You knew all about the Apocrypha? Okay, how many of you who had it, read it? So no one's read the Apocrypha. I could say anything. Have you read it, Franklin? Okay. Okay. Yeah, Maccabees, some of them are really good reading. If you've read parts, you've probably read some good, good reading. And it is. Say again. I have a Catholic Bible, yeah. which weighs almost 25 pounds. Catholic Bible, 25 pounds? Yeah. Man. Joseph, I mean, I knew you were old, but I didn't know you were dating back to those days when it was written on, on silver tablets. <laughs> Yeah, that's better. Now you've got it all duct taped together. That's what every good Christian has to do is duct tape their Bible. So the Apocrypha itself, the word means hidden. But it's not a good word for the books. They're not hidden books. It describes a group of about 20 ancient works. I say about because it's between 12, 15, and sometimes 20. depends on what you add. Fitting historically into what we call the intertestamental era. So from Malachi to the, to the coming of John the Baptist, that's where the history of these books fits in. They're, they're good reading, by the way, especially the Maccabees. Throughout history, the church has debated the inspiration, value, authority, and the usefulness of these books, still debating it today. I think they're useful. I think they're wonderful. But anyone who reads them, anyone with a, a lick of sense can read them and go, there's no way that's inspired scripture. They're historical writings. Some of them are somewhat fanciful. Good reading, but there's lies uh, in, in Tobit, Tobit is an interesting book, a good one, but it's just a strange book, and you're going, no way this is inspired by God. Generally, Judaism and all Protestant churches do not view the Apocrypha as canonical, remember that word canon, as, a, as fitting the, the bill, or authoritative, but the churches of the Roman Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox, the Ethiopian Orthodox, and Syriac traditions accept most of them as part of their Old Testament. So, uh, Debate always goes on. Got to have something to, to debate about. I don't think the Apocrypha is worth debating. 
Um, the earliest church fathers, Jerome, who wrote the Latin Vulgate, the one the Catholics used, didn't think it belonged in there. Uh, in the Septuagint, it ended up in the Septuagint, 250 B.C. Uh, so it's, it's good reading, but uh, it's not inspired scripture. So how many of you saw or read the Da Vinci Code? I mean, if you, if you would dare, hold your hand up. Sharon Mulligan's up here like this. Is it her thing? Amanda, yeah, okay. Well, I figured she is. <laughs> now, I, my understanding is it's entertaining. We all like to be entertained. I didn't see it because I knew I might use a bad word while watching it. So did it happen, as Dan Brown tells us, that Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 8325 decided which books the New Testament would contain. Did he do that while banishing and burning all the other competitors, Jimmy Jordan? He did not. Thank you. See, Jimmy didn't think that last week. <laughs> amazing, what, amazing what a week will do. Uh, not even close. That's not what the Council of Nicaea discussed. And apparently Dan Brown just decided, I'm going to lie as, as much as I can, or I'm just going to take hearsay knowledge that I think is true and put it in a movie or a book. And, uh, you know, have you ever done that? Something you've, you thought was true? And uh, I, I can, um, when, back when people were wearing masks and had to wear masks, I say people because I didn't, I wasn't a person. No, I had to wear a mask too. <laughs> And, and I was under the impression, because somebody told me, that for those of us who have uh, a license to carry weapons, um, it is against the law for us who have firearms to wear a mask. And I was telling people that. And then someone came up and said, you know, that's farce. <laughs> it is? I didn't check it, but it sounded right. So we believe things that sound right. How many of you ever heard the, the, the notion that when the high priest would go in and, and, and offer incense, that he had a cord wrapped around his leg in case he died, they'd pull him out? There's nothing to that. That's never been, never, ne, there's nothing in the world that says that's true. How many of you have heard the stories of a man swallowed by a whale, not Jonah, swallowed by a whale who was later cut out and lived to tell about it? Anyone else? They're in Bible commentaries. It's all been proven to be false. Uh, but it sounds good, right? Something. Well, a year ago might might be might be a new case, but the old cases that are there all tracked down, not true. So I don't know if Dan Brown was just trying to pull everybody's leg, or if he actually thought it was true. But that's not what happened. Well, you know what? To cl- to have a movie like that and to say all that he said and to go back in history and twist it up so bad. Either he's doing it willingly, or I don't know what the other or is. I mean, if you saw, I did not see it, but uh, uh, Russell Crowe doing something on Noah's Ark. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, like they, it's like they wrote out a bunch of truths, put it in a box, shook it up, took it out and just stripped it. Here's how we're going to run this script. It's making money. Uh, well, it's making money. That's, and, that's really so I don't know what Dan Brown's thing was, but don't, don't watch junk. Read truth. So, let me ask you this. Are the 27 books of the New Testament, put on your thinking cap, are the 27 books of the New Testament an authorized collection of writings, or are they a collection of authoritative writings? It's a trick question. I shouldn't say it's a trick, but it's something you've got to think about. What am I asking? Okay, if they're God-breathed, but that's not the question per se. Who decides if they're God-breathed? Are they authorized as writings, or are they authoritative writings? In other words, did the church decide they were, or were they? Okay. 
Think of it like this. I thought of this example all by myself today. <laughs> I did. I did a lot. I'll show you. So let's assume a plane goes down in the ocean. Flight 999 goes down in the ocean. Uh, they know the last place where they had uh, contact with it. They go down to the place where it went down, and they find a plane. Okay? Plane's down there. They're, they're finding it in pieces, and as they do, sadly, they go down and they pick up. Do they decide that this is the plane, or is it the plane already? That's the plane. We know that's where the plane crashed. No one goes down and said, I've decided I'm authorizing that this piece is a piece of that plane that went down. No one has to say that. It is that plane. Every piece that comes up is from that. Aren't they numbered, though? The planes are numbered. You're ruining my illustration. (laughs) The same is true with the Bible. The Bible is a book that's authorized by God. The church doesn't, now if you're a Roman Catholic, this is, the Roman Catholics will say the church decided and said these are. So the church has rulership over the Bible. It can overrule the Bible. We as Protestants see it from another angle. The Bible is authoritative and we recognize what's authoritative. As we would go into the ocean and say we recognize that's the plane that crashed. We're not deciding it is, we recognize that it is. So we would say they are a collection of authoritative writings. The church simply recognized which books already had divine authority to equip God's people. The first time that all 27 books are named together is in a letter to the church written by Athanasius in A.D. 367. Now that's not when the Bible became the Bible, but it is an authoritative time. Finally, by A.D. 367, the books that were in question have all been agreed upon by those who read them, circulate them, and allow them to teach that these are, we recognize, God's Word. It's not a decision. They didn't have a vote at the Council of Nicaea. Everyone recognized that these are the words of God. <clears throat> Later church councils also decreed that these 27 books are Scripture up to the end of the three hundred, like 397. Council of Hippo, I believe, is one of them. Um, and it's just a recognition. Okay, we're all, uh, there's nothing else being written. There's no other books out there in circulation we need to look at to determine whether this is the wreckage from the plane, as it were. Uh, These are the books. So when we look at the Bible story, we would say that Genesis gives us an account of creation and the earliest generations. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who was there to see that? No one. So God has to give us that. Genesis chapter 1 is given to us. By Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are telling us the story. And what you'll find in in Genesis, if you're reading from, say, a King James Version, New American Standard, or or a literal version of the Bible, you'll see the word, these are the generations thereof. These are the generations, you'll read it 10 or 12 times, I think. It's, this is what Adam and Eve gave us. This is what Noah gave us. This is what Shem gave us. This is what Joseph gave us. These are the Toledots. That's a Hebrew word, the Toledot, the generation thereof. So God gives us chapter 1. Those that he created are giving us these generations. Moses isn't born yet, but Moses compiles them. They are passed down to Moses. He compiles Genesis. He's the editor of Genesis, we would say, including it in the Torah, which is Hebrew for the law, 1500 B.C. The last book, Malachi, written around 430 B.C., uh, all of this covers about 3,500 years. That's the Bible story, the Old Testament anyway. The New Testament we know is written between A.D. 45, the earliest, and up to A.D. 95 when John finished, and, and the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation and passed away. 
The Gospels and letters written and shared by churches are scrutinized by those who knew the apostles, meticulously copied and used for worship in all the early churches. As I told you earlier, these books began to circulate. Letters, people reading them. We, the church, everyone agrees. These are the writings that God gave to us from the apostles. The church fathers wrote extensively by quoting what was clearly believed to be holy writ in their own writings. And as I told you last week, if we lost, even in the first, second century, if we lost all the writings of the Bible, all scriptural teachings, we can reprint the entire Bible just based on what the church fathers are quoting. They're quoting it that extensively. So we have no copies of the Bible whatsoever. Let's go to Irenaeus. Let's go to Clement. Let's go to, to, uh, to Papias. And let's see what they wrote. They're writing this. Oh, wow. They are copying the Bible at great length. We can put the whole Bible together just by the quotations of the early church fathers. Other writings, for example, the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas and the rest of those, they're read in the churches but known not to be authored by the apostles. The other pseudo-epigraphical writings, the Gnostic writings, for example, are the, and the obvious forgeries, like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, they were recognized as such in the Orthodox Church. The Council of Nicaea in AD 325 did not, did not decide which books were included in the New Testament. I'm making fun of Jimmy, but most people, I say most people, so many people uh, think that that's what the Council of Nicaea was. It's amazing. It's just one of those little legends came on. That's where they decided the books of the Bible. I mean, the Council of Nicaea, we'll look at it, but that was called for one reason, to determine what the church thought of Jesus' divinity. Was he divine or was he not? wasn't a discussion of which books belong in the Bible. So from the Bible to the ch- and the church fathers, got a nice little gnat in my face. Paul quotes from Luke's gospel in 1 Timothy 5.18, and he calls it scripture. Quoting from Luke's gospel. Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says that they twist scripture... In Paul's letters, he says, they they twist Paul's words, and he says, even though some of Paul's words are hard to understand, they twist his words as they do the rest of Scripture. So Peter's putting Paul's words on par with Scripture in the New Testament. In AD 125, Polycarp, remember the bishop of Smyrna? He quotes from the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote, twice, and he refers to it as part of sacred Scripture. In 125, Justin in 150, on at least 16 occasions, quotes from the Gospels, the four Gospels, calling them the memoirs of the Apostles. And Irenaeus in 180 spoke of the fourfold form, as I showed you earlier, of the Gospels, meaning that there were other writings that were circulating, that were excluded, and Irenaeus said, that leaves us four. Four that we know are from the Apostles. Now, what makes it in there? How do these standards come about? How do we learn? Now, there is no writing. You can't come across anything in an archaeological dig that says, here's how we figured out that we're going to come to the New Testament. It's, you put different things together and what's found. Eusebius has something. Muratorian Canon has a couple of things. And you put them together. There's about three things. Three, sometimes people will list four. Number one, here's the standard for whether this book should be in Holy Writ. Here's how we recognize that this is the wreckage of the plane. Number one, it has to be written by eyewitness or a close associate to an eyewitness. Well, that's Jesus had 12 disciples. Um, those would have had the firsthand knowledge. If they wrote it, then we know it's accurate. They wouldn't lie. Jesus ordained them, told them what they would do. Now, Luke was not an apostle. 
Mark was not an apostle. Mark, we know, was a close associate. Remember, that's John Mark who left Paul, upset Paul and Barnabas. But he ends up with Peter. And we see that in the New Testament. We know that Peter, according to the church fathers, was an associate of Mark. And so Mark is writing for Peter. So we might say Mark is just, is, is, uh, should be, could be called the gospel of Peter. But we don't because there is a gospel of Peter. We have Mark. So it had to be written by an eyewitness. Luke, we know, was a, was a historian and was following Paul. We read that in Acts. I was with Paul. He sees everything Paul does, goes with Paul, hears what Paul says, writes down what Paul says. He was with Paul in prison. Eyewitness. Number two, the book had to be relevant. It could not contradict other authoritative writings. So in other words, if you've got Hebrews and you're saying, okay, we don't know if Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but it doesn't contradict anything we have in Holy Scripture. In fact, it says what Holy Scripture says, and it's got some other information. I think the most important thing about Hebrews is it tells us about Jesus' priesthood. It, and I really, I think this is the biggest point in Hebrews, is that Jesus, we know, was from the line of kings, the Judean line. The kings came from the line of Judah. Yet Jesus is our priest. If God is over there and we're over there, we have to have a priest, not a king. Well, Jesus doesn't come from the line of Levi, where the priest came. Jesus comes from the line of Melchizedek, which is spoken of in Psalm 110, well, who, who as a personality is spoken of in Genesis 14. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our priest, not because he comes from the line of Levi. That's an inferior line of priests. But by through Melchizedek, who preceded the line of Levi. It's a wonderful theological truth. In fact, the writer of Hebrews gives you a litmus test on whether you know anything at all. He says, if you don't know about Melchizedek, you don't know Jack Squat. (laughs) He doesn't say it that way, though, as you probably know. And, and people today will go, Melchizedek, what? I never heard that word. Never heard that name. It's a big name. But if Jesus isn't our priest, then he cannot die on our behalf, can he? Our great high priest. So it had to be relevant. Couldn't contradict other authoritative writings. And finally, it should be recognized by the churches throughout the world and be widespread. It's going to be widespread if it's recognized. It moves around. It permeates. And so that's why Hebrews and James... Second Peter, second and third John, that's why they were all eventually uh, let in because it was understood they were written by apostles. Um, one of the most boring things I had to do in seminary was write a paper on um, whether Galatians was written to the northern Galatians or the southern Galatians. And the second one was whether second Peter uh, is canonical. Talk about sleepers. You're thinking, well, it is canonical. It's in the Bible, right? Why do I need to write a paper on it? Because you're in seminary and you're paying to do this. But in the end, when you get through that, you, you learn a few things. You've got a headache and you might not be married anymore, but you, you've learned something. No, I was. My wife was so good to me in seminary. Even though we had little kids and she needed help, it was, I'd get up and say, I've got to write two papers today. So don't talk to me. Okay. She had no problem with that. <laughs> So the New Testament canon, what you're seeing there in that picture, that is the earliest copy of any book we have in the New Testament. It's from John 18, the John Rylands manuscript. Um, from the beginning, the church has recognized it dates back to A.D. 110. I think earlier, but uh, A.D. 110. Um, from the beginning, the church is recognized as authoritative. The four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, Epistles of Paul, and at least one of John's epistles. Um, 
Some disagreements persisted for several years over whether the other New Testament books could be clearly connected to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. This is more of a summary. Uh, but by AD 367, uh, in a letter written by Athanasius, uh, those books are finally come together and, and understood. So, some responses to the church. You with me? You hanging with me? Yeah. Okay, stay with me. I'm almost done. So the response of the church, number one, is what we just looked at by attempting to clarify what sort of Christian writing should be authoritative and canonical. That's what we just went through. So uh, number two is the church has responded by summarizing their faith in a confession known as the rule of faith. And number three, the church has responded by giving bishops, their overseers or pastors, in certain cities they gave them the responsibility for maintaining doctrinal integrity in their churches. That's a great responsibility. So remember, this is all started when Marcion, he comes in, he's got all these other books, and he's gotten rid of other books. The church responds, these are the books that govern us. These are God's word. This is how they responded. And now we're going to, I know, it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah. This is how you summarize the rule of faith. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the Apostles' Creed? How many of you grew up and you recited it every Sunday? You're a Methodist and you're, and you're saying, I believe in the holy Catholic Church. And you're going, well, it means universal. You do say holy Catholic. And you're going, you're, you're a Catholic and you're going, why are we saying holy Catholic Church? Everyone knows why but me. No, no one does. And of course, it means universal. But it sounds like we're Methodist, part of the Reformation, and we're saying we believe in Roman Catholic Church. So here's how this happened. Confessions of faith. Even in the first century, Christians confessed their faith in specific ways. From Mark 12, 29, the Lord is one, was a Jewish confession of faith that early Christians also accepted. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Quoted the early, and so they would summarize it. We believe the Lord is one, spoken of in Mark 12, 29. Jesus is Lord. It was another uh, early Christian confession of faith. Just say Jesus is Lord. And we get that? I mean, what does it mean? Confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. Good class. The Greek word for fish, ichthus, represented a confession of faith among early Christians, spelled out. Jesus, Christos, Theu, Huios, Soter. Jesus Christ, divine Son, Savior. So you get that little fish in your car now? See, now, you, now you're all going to go get a fish. And apparently it was the underground church. One would do one little little move and the other one would make the other move. And uh, you, you knew that you were Christians. So the confessions of faith in the second century, a more comprehensive confession of faith, a more comprehensive, comprehensive confession of faith emerged. This confession of faith was repeated when a new believer was baptized to distinguish between faithful Christians and Gnostics. You had to. It became known as the rule of faith and later as the Apostles' Creed. So once the creed is done, now we've got, uh, and we'll look at that creed in just a second as we close tonight. But the last response was to give the bishops or overseers in certain cities the responsibility for maintaining the doctrinal integrity in their churches. That was then and now. It's my responsibility along with the elders and deacons of this church to maintain doctrinal purity. But it's not just ours. We live in a day where you know the Scripture as much as we do, maybe more. You can know it. You can read it. And so anytime we get out of line, you're there. We are there to hold each other accountable. Not the case back then. If you were literate at all, you didn't have a Bible, you had to trust your bishops. Uh, unfortunately, too many people don't and won't read their Bible and trust their bishops, and they shouldn't. I was just having fun, you know. Sometimes you got to... 
So you've got this priesthood of overseers. In the first century, elders, overseers, seem to have guided each local church as they did, as we do now. During the Gnostic controversy, these overseers in certain cities where the apostles had ministered traced their teachings and authority back to the apostles, and so they would make their decisions based upon that. Overseers in certain cities, such as Rome, gradually gained greater authority and began to oversee churches beyond their own cities. So as we look at the evolution of the Roman Catholic Church, not only, as we've seen in in weeks past, did they change the way an overseer worked, a bishop worked, uh, they begin, as they become the largest, most uh, influential church, now that guy that's over the church, the, the papa, the bishop, the pope, uh, he will be the one that everyone learns to look to. I mean, because if you've got the biggest church, you must have the most influential church. So this priesthood of overseers in Polycarp's church, they celebrated Easter at a different time than the Roman church. Have you noticed that Easter falls on a different day almost every year? There's a reason for that. So in AD 60, Polycarp and uh, Anicetus, overseer of Rome, agreed to disagree about the Easter issue. Near the end of the second century, Victor served as bishop of Rome, and unlike Anicetus, uh, Victor demanded that Christians in the Eastern Roman Empire celebrate Easter on the same dates of the Roman church. Demanded, you must do it on this day. When Eastern churches refused, Victor excluded them from fellowship with Roman Christians. I'll show them. Okay, so as we close, we go back to Marcion. We go back to uh, unorthodox teaching. You and I today, we want to try to summarize our faith. Here's what we believe. Here's how we believe it. Here's why we believe it. And a creed is good. Uh, I like creeds. Um, I grew up Baptist, and for some reason, Baptists don't like creeds. Um, But uh, creeds are good if they're good creeds. And this one is one of those good ones. So it says, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, notice there, this is the earliest form. So it doesn't say Holy Catholic Church. And you'll note it doesn't say went into hell. Which people go, when did Jesus go to hell? Even the one that says go to hell is really just saying he went into the dead. Um, And what I've done here is I've broken it down. So uh, in God the Father and Jesus Christ, I've I've indented those because it says more about Jesus than it says anything in this creed. And then at the end is in in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh. Now, what I want you to see that you may know, but if you don't know, this was written to refute Marcion. Every bit of it. Gotta put my glasses on. Okay. It is Trinitarian, number one, and it's baptism. So you'll note that. In God the Father, Christ, and you see the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian, number one. This is directed against Marcion when he says, in God the Father Almighty. Remember? Marcion said he's a foolish sub-God, Yahweh. The creed, however, is directed against Marcion. No, he's the Almighty. Almighty means that he's not a foolish sub-God, he's God. Note that the Christology, when it's speaking of Christ, the study of Christ, it rails against Gnosticism. It says he is a son, that he was born. It's not so much that he was born a virgin, but that he was born, the birth itself. It lists Pontius Pilate a time in history, a place. It dates the death, Jesus' death as historical. And notice that he would return to judge He will come to judge the living and the dead. This is what Marcion loathed about the Old Testament God. 
a God of judgment. It's what people today love. God is all loving. He's not going to judge me. I'm a good person. And then you see the resurrection, the resurrection of the flesh. So the entire Apostles' Creed is directed against Marcion and the Gnostic theology. So if you know your creeds, uh, and we'll look at uh, later on, we'll look at the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Ephesian Creed. Uh, each one is, is dealing with a problem in the church, and it's correcting the heresy of the day. So if you know a good creed, in fact, <clears throat> one of my favorite songs by Petra is Creed. Because uh, I like the rock and roll nature of it. I love the tune. And it's saying this. If you want to know the gospel start to finish and you want to sing it loud, turn on Petra Creed. Or, or um, uh, Rich Mullins did a version of, of Creed back in the, the 80s or 90s, I believe. So memorize a song and you know the whole Bible. How about that? You really do. You could think, well, the whole New Testament, right? <laughs> Out loud laughs. I have to think about what I just said. So <laughs> that's true. But it's good when you're trying to learn your theology. I remember... Um, I was on an airplane, I was going to Israel one time, and this guy was with me, and he said, I want you to listen to this. And it was rap. And I said, no, I don't listen to rap. I don't like rap. I don't do rap. You've got to listen to this. No, I don't want to listen to it. Fine. It was a guy, I think it was Shia Lin. Some of you younger folks don't know who Shia Lin is, was. And all the songs were like going to seminary. He's rapping the systems of theology eschatology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and he wraps them start to finish. And I'm going, I spent $100,000 to learn that at Dallas Seminary. I could have memorized Shia Lin. So some of the songs, if you find the right ones, or raps, heaven forbid, uh, are good. That creed is one of them. So something to memorize or, or, or go listen to on the radio. Let me close this in a word of prayer. If you have any questions, you can come up and talk to me, but I'm, I'm late now. Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much for uh, gathering, uh, bringing us together. Uh, we honor your name, Lord, and we, we look at church history. I pray that we're encouraged at how you have uh, perhaps manipulated and, uh, and directed and guided your people uh, for your will, for your, for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the, the reminders of what has happened, how it fits into the present day of what is happening. And I pray that we would be edified and ultimately bring glory to you as we understand and learn our history. Thank you, Lord. We pray this and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.